governance, which is which is the audit committee. Um, and we do have some financial highlights on, uh, and they are highlights this year, uh, on the uh, financial statements uh, that you have, and then uh, an executive session uh, if that's uh, to de determined to be necessary. Uh, so that's our planned agenda um, here this afternoon. Uh, we, I guess um, before I, I dig in, I would like to acknowledge uh, the uh, Adam, Alameda Health System team, finance team, and uh, Kim and the team for all their assistance to get us here today. It was a little bit of an accelerated timeline this year. Um, and so we, we couldn't be here presenting to you today, uh, certainly with all, without all their great work and assistance. Uh, we do have draft financial statements at this point uh, for you. Um, we expect to ultimately issue um, in uh, the, significantly in the form that they're currently in. Uh, there might be a few uh, changes uh, as we finalize dot some I's and cross some T's, uh, but you should be looking at uh, financial statements that have been through all of our review processes and, and the audit is substantially complete. So next slide, John. And I, uh, it goes without saying, if you do have questions on the material that we're covering or may important, maybe more importantly, anything that we don't cover uh, that you have questions on, don't. Don't hesitate to interject at any time. Uh, scope of services that we're discussing here today, the annual financial statement audit of the combined health system uh, as of and for the year ended June 30th, 2022. Uh, that's Javin in the draft materials. Uh, there will also again be a single audit of the combined health system for the same uh, year end that's required to be completed uh, nine months after year end by March 31st, 2023. Uh, qu quite a bit of work has been done on that, uh, but we would expect that to be finalized um, over the next couple of months probably. And again, that's a component of an audit that uh, examines and reports on uh, the compliance with federal grant expenditure activity. And non-attest services are listed here. These are really important. Uh, to understand the other services that Moss Adams is providing, uh, uh, especially as it relates to our independence uh, for the financial statement audit. So we've assisted the management team with drafting the health system's financial statements, and we expect to assist the management team with drafting the auditee section of the OMB data collection form. That's the form that's ultimately filed with the federal clearinghouse related to the uh, single audit referred to uh, previously. So, so neither of these services uh, would impair our independence with respect to the financial statement audit. Next slide. So just a quick reminder of our responsibilities. I know uh, um, John and the team talked about this in our planning session in June, but um, our responsibilities uh, for the financial statement audit are to express an opinion on whether these financial statements prepared by management team uh, with your or oversight, obviously are fairly uh, presented in all material respects in accordance with United States generally accepted accounting principles. Um, of course, that opinion in our audit does not relieve you or your management of the responsibilities related to the financial statements. And so, um, our objective really and what we take ownership of is the opinion on the financial statements. That opinion uh, means that we believe those financial statements are 
uh, fairly stated in all material respects. Uh, and it, um, those standards obligate us to obtain reasonable but not absolute assurance that the uh, financial statements are free of material misstatement. So that's the first important point is the responsibilities for the financial statements. What Moss Adams takes responsibility for and what your management team has responsibility for. We're responsible for the opinion. Uh, Alameda Health System is responsible for the statements themselves. Secondly, the, the other important point I think on this slide is to understand our responsibility respective to internal controls of the organization. So we're responsible for understanding uh, your internal control, uh, particularly for financial reporting and compliance, uh, primarily as a basis for designing our audit procedures, um, but not for the purpose of expressing an opinion on the operating effectiveness of those internal controls. So we don't, our opinion doesn't cover the internal controls uh, specifically. We spend a lot of time with your controls. Uh, in many cases, we may choose to test those and rely on those as audit evidence. Uh, but again, the objective of the audit is not specifically to opine on the operating effectiveness of the internal controls. If we do find deficiencies in your control structure that rise to a certain level, uh, we're required to communicate those to you in writing until they're remediated. So we'll have a few slides on that later. But those, I think, are the two really important points here um, on this particular slide related to responsibilities uh, for a financial statement audit. And then next slide, uh, a really important slide, talk about the opinions uh, on the financial statements. Uh, we have uh, in draft form an unmodified opinion on your annual financial statements, highest level of assurance uh, that we can provide a classic clean opinion. Um, in our communications with those charged with uh, governance that John will cover, there's some really important factors uh, in that will communicate to you in in understanding how you know an unmodified opinion relates to uh, accounting and financial reporting quality, uh, but again, this is and those are all you know those important points are all positive factors in the current year and whether there were adjustments, etc. Um, but you do have an unmodified opinion, and again, that's the highest level of assurance that we can provide. And in accordance with uh, government auditing standards. Um, there is an, another report that accompanies uh, the annual financial statements related to um, internal control over financial reporting and compliance uh, with other matters, uh, and there are no issues identified in that uh, report either. So let's talk about uh, significant risks identified and, and procedures related to those, uh, a really important part of understanding um, the results of the audit. And, and to start that conversation, I'll turn it over to John. John? Sure. Thank you so much. So this first significant risk that we um, discussed with this committee back during planning was the valuation of accounts receivable and the recognition of patient service revenue. One of our primary procedures that we perform as it relates to the accounts receivable is basically liquidation of last year's estimated accounts receivable. And in doing that, we found that um, those cash receipts subsequent to the year end of June 30, 2021 had been recognized and were actually in excess of accounts receivable last year. And so what this tells us that management's estimate may have been a little bit conservative 
in last year, but uh, you may recall that in the, the last 24 months or so, um, there has been the uh, implementation of a new enterprise, excuse me, uh, uh, software, the Epic software, the uh, to manage your patient activities, as well as it's also being leveraged to um, support the, the billing function. And so um, what management is currently seeing is that what they're doing is evaluating whether or not they need to be adjusting their reserves and their estimates on accounts receivable as a result of collections in the current year. And so uh, we look to uh, to them to continue their exercise in evaluating those uh, collection histories going forward. Um, what that meant for the year ended June 30, 2022, is that um, we also saw that estimated collections on 22 may exceed what they've recognized in their financial statements. Management chose not to make an adjustment. We were comfortable with their decisions. But right now, based on the collection activities of the organization, um, essentially accounts receivable is uh, materially stated. And uh, we were comfortable with that. Switching over to patient service revenue, um, we perform several analytical procedures. We also uh, work with their control structure and do some testing on controls. Uh, we didn't find any issues with their uh, controls during our procedures. Uh, we then switch over to analytical procedures. We bifurcate um, a lot of the patient service revenue into uh, the different categories, inpatient, outpatient, things like that, to evaluate the reasonableness of uh, patient service revenue and um, uh, found it to be reasonably stated. The other significant risk area that we identified solely related to the financial statement audit, since we're not focusing on the single audit at this point, um, is those management override of controls. Um, we performed all of our planned procedures, our inquiries, our journal entry testing, and did not identify any uh, areas where we thought there were management override of controls. Moving on to matters communicated to uh, to the board, to this governing body. First thing I wanted to touch on were uh, significant accounting practices. Those are the accounting policies that are disclosed in the footnotes to the financial statements. The health system was required to adopt GASB number 87, the lease standard in the current year. And that adoption required management to not only adopt it for 2022, but also to adopt it for all years presented in the basic financial statements, which basically means that they had to retroactively adopt the standard as if it were presented or as if it were adopted for the year, for fiscal year 21. And so uh, we took a, a look at and evaluated management's procedures for determining the completeness of their lease obligations. Those are those future commitment schedules that have always been disclosed in the financial statements. What the standard basically did is it said, if there is a lease and it is longer than a year and met the criteria of the standard, that that lease would effectively be recognized as a right to use asset on the financial statements and a corresponding lease liability. Those assets and the lease liabilities are all considered to be financing leases. And so the treatment for financing leases is basically to record that asset and to depreciate that asset 
as if it were an asset and not just a, uh, a right to use asset. And so the depreciation or amortization of that right to use asset has been restated in the financial statements. Instead of it being rent expense, it's now being recognized as amortization expense. And then similarly, there's a right to use asset and a lease liability being recognized by management on the statement of financial position. And so if you were to take a look at last year's audited financial statements and this year's statements, you'd notice there's a difference in the fiscal year 21. There is a, um, a comprehensive list in footnote 22 that gives you a crosswalk for the prior year statement and then the as restated balances this year for fiscal year 21. The additional footnote disclosures that come about as a result of the, uh, the adoption of the lease standard are located in note 19. They're the right, right to use asset and the lease obligation footnote where it maps out the, the asset, what's happened to the assets during the current year ad adoption of, or you know, excuse me, recognition of new right to use assets and then the depletion or amortization of those assets during the year. The other thing that we have to take um, quite a bit of time to look at is the discount rate that management used to determine the amount to record in the financial statements. Uh, the statements require that management determine their incremental borrowing rate, which is an estimate that is used to discount the uh, future payments of the leases to present value. The total amount of lease liability and right to use assets that were recognized as of the beginning of fiscal year 21, so July 1, 2020, was roughly $35.4 million. Any questions about the adoption of lease standards? Okay, moving on. As it relates to the rest of the uh, accounting standards that management uh, is required to comply with in, in accordance with US GAAP, um, we found that management had consistently applied those standards from year to year and there were no other significant changes. We did not identify any significant unusual transactions that were reflected in the, the health systems financial statements. There were no uncorrected misstatements as a result of our audit procedures. So what this means is that um, as we worked through the audit, we did not identify any misstatements that management that we thought management should record that they did not record. There were some corrections made to the financial statements, but most of those corrections were actually proposed by management prior to uh, commencement of the section as it relates to our audit procedures. The, the largest adjustment, as you can imagine, is the adoption of GASB 87. Uh, those figures, the right to use assets, the lease obligation, the changes to rent expense, the changes to amortization expense, weren't reflected in your internal statements until we got to this point where management's presenting to you the draft financial statements. So that's really what we're talking about here is these, these misstatements. Management made these corrections prior to the presentation of these draft financial statements. Other required communications, um, we did not identify or encounter any significant difficulties during the performance of the audit. We did not have any disagreements with management in uh, 
their recognition or their presentation of the financial statements. We did not identify any um, circumstances that would affect the content of the auditor's report. Um, there is an emphasis of matter in the auditor's report, simply calling your attention to the adoption of GASB 87. There are no matters or no other items identified in the auditor's report. There were no findings or issues. Um, we're not aware that management had a consultation with another accountant. While that's not prohibited, had management have done that and we were aware of it, we would let you know here during this discussion. Overall, there were no significant issues um, arising as a result of the audit. And then just so that you're aware, management will be, be providing uh, us with a representation letter um, to things that they represented during the course of the engagement. I will now go through financial highlights. This first slide here is a combination of assets and deferred outflows. So there's quite a bit of significant movement. I'm really just going to focus on those uh, substantive changes. Um, but as you can imagine, uh, cash and cash equivalents, our audit procedures there are confirming those balances with your, uh, your financial institutions. And we found those to be materially stated, materially stated, excuse me. Uh, patient accounts receivable, net of those valuation allowances, I did indicate that uh, management uh, fully collected their prior year accounts receivable, and it looks like they're at least on track to collect more than what they've recognized here at $93 million. But again, it is an estimate, and so management's working on those estimates and continuing to improve those as they continue to get better information out of the, uh, the new system. Amounts due from third party have increased in the current year. Uh, management has several third party contracts for various programs that it um, participates in um, as a, a, a public hospital. And so there are additional receivables that were not collected prior to year end. Based on our audit procedures, the collection rate of prior year um, amounts on these programs, as well as the amounts that were uh, contractually obligated through the contracts um, we determined this receivable was reasonably stated. Other current assets did take a slight decline in the current year, uh, did not uh, find that to be unusual given the, the status of those assets. Similarly with capital assets, um, there were no large uh, additions to capital assets in the current year. And so this depletion uh, of amortization and depreciation is offset by some additions that are uh, reported in the statement of cash flows. Restricted cash and cash equivalents do remain consistent um, from prior year, which met our expectations. The largest increase on this particular slide is in this category, other non-current assets. And so this is actually a brand new category. It wasn't here in last year's presentation. Um, it's evidenced by a zero in 2020. In 21, this is the restated uh, assets and deferred outflows. This $32 million is solely represented uh, or representative of the right to use assets in the assets for 2021. The right to use assets were roughly the same for 22, but as you can see, that difference is about a million dollars. That difference is made up by two things. In 22, the organization's liquidity facility with the County of Alameda 
went from being a, uh, a liability of 75 million to a receivable of 25 million. This liquidity facility is, is swept on a daily basis by the county and is an, uh, an asset and represents assets available for use by the health system that are held with the county. So it's gone from being a liability to being an asset. And then the other uh, material change here is really the, the OPEB um, net pension plan assets. In 21, this was a net pension or a, a net liability. And so the activities of the OPEB assets in the OPEB plan have had a, uh, a positive year. It's also impacted the deferred inflows. And so the combination of the liquidity facility flipping from being a liability to an asset and also the, the, the OPEB net liability flipping from being a liability to an asset has caused this large increase to present itself here in 22. Any questions about this slide? Okay, I'm gonna jump to the liabilities and deferred outflows. I've already kind of covered the deferred outflows. If we were to look at the, the far right-hand side of the page, again, this is basically because of that, that deferred or that OPEB plan having uh, a significant improvement in the investments in that plan and that are being recognized as deferred inflows and have also flipped the, the, the plan liability from being a liability to an asset. Accounts payable did... Uh, tick up about 30 million in the current year. Uh, management had several uh, accrued liabilities to recognize as they were preparing the financial statements. Our audit procedures focus on disbursements prior or after year end. And our sampling did not identify any liabilities that were not properly recognized at year end. And so this increase was determined to be reasonable. Unlike the due from third parties, the due to third parties, those liabilities have been getting paid regularly. And so we see that, that decrease in this overall liability um, going down. Our audit procedures are the same, whether it's a, a, a third party receivable or a third party payable in all those supplemental income programs. We focus on, again, the activities during the year, um, an understanding of the contract and what we expect uh, to happen as it relates to the collections and receivables, the payments, and also revenue recognition within these programs. And uh, like the due from third parties, we found these liabilities to be reasonably stated. Other current liabilities have slightly increased in the current year. Um, this relates to uh, accrued payroll liabilities and things like that. Our audit procedures, again, are focused on those disbursements after your end and found these um, these liabilities to be reasonably stated. Here's that liquidity facility I mentioned on the previous slide. It had decreased to a zero position as far as a liability, but then uh, is recognized as an asset on the previous slide in that uh, other non-current assets category. The net pension liability, so this large decrease here is a direct result of the OPEB plan flipping from being in a liability position to being in a plan asset position. And then as, as it relates to other non-current liabilities, um, this is where that lease obligation is nested. There's not a large increase. There were some uh, other non-current liabilities in 2020 that have depleted as we entered into 21, where the uh, lease obligation was originally stood up with that 35 million uh, 
and then the same obligation roughly at the end of 22. A quick representation of you know, the relationship between patient service accounts receivable and net revenues. A couple of slides ago, you saw that accounts receivable did go up, but more importantly is that relationship with net patient service revenue. And as you can see here, um, as Epic has stabilized, uh, we're seeing that accounts receivable as a percent of net patient service revenues is landing right at that you know, 13% average, which is another reason where we were able to get comfortable with management's representation of the valuation of accounts receivable. So again, our procedures are an estimate. It's looking at collections. They could be um, uh, impacted by heavier collections up front, whereas a couple of years ago, the collections were spread out a little bit more across the year. So this representation gives us some additional comfort that management has landed on a reasonable valuation for accounts receivable and their net patient service revenue. Jumping down to uh, operating expenses as a percent of revenues, revenues in 22 were 1,164 million compared to 1,109 million in 2021. As a percent of revenues, salaries and wages and benefits continues to be the largest portion of uh, expenses that the, um, the health system incurs year over year. Obviously, that's really consistent with um, all health systems within your area and across the nation. Uh, as your expenses or your, excuse me, your total revenues did increase, we did see a slight decrease in the total salaries and wages and benefits, which makes sense given that there was probably some pent up capacity in being able to provide services to your patients with your existing staff. All of the rest of the uh, expense categories were really consistent from year to year. And this pictorial representation didn't spark any additional audit procedures as a result. I do believe that's the end of our planned remarks. Happy to discuss anything or answer any questions. I have a question. Sure. If you, John, if you go back to the last slide. Uh, yeah, I understand salary. Does that Salaries, wages, and benefits also include registry. Is that just personnel cost, people cost, or is it, or, or is that registry travelers buried somewhere else? Registry is um, included in purchased services, okay. so it does not include the, the the cost of of registry on the health system in these two years. So that so went the, up from eight to nine percent. Uh, it's the uh, I'll call it medium gray in this presentation oh, okay. uh, you may be seeing it as brown but it's eight percent okay. and seven percent so there's so it went up by one percent okay it went up yeah. by one percent um given the increase in in a total revenues and so if you were to combine the the two salaries wages and benefits and purchase services you'd be at 78 percent in 22 and 79 percent in 21. So that includes that you think that that pretty much is the purchase service is pretty much the registry. Is it, it, was there anything else that might be in there? I mean, this may be a question for Kim, but I'm just just trying to identify the the on the on the on the chart here. What it, it does include other purchase services is not just registry. So it's going to be things like uh, you know repair and maintenance contracts, your your security contracts, all those types of you know contracts. Um, 
but overall registry is the largest portion of that category. Yeah, thank you, John. Certainly. Cameron, did you wanna add anything to that? All right, took me a minute to get off mute there. Um, well, you, we have to remember that the pandemic reduced the number of services. So it's kind of a mixed bag going on here. Um, but our registry rate has gone up substantially, but we had lower volumes. So um, we can do a little more of an analysis here. I don't know, Anne, if you have any, any comps. I know we were texting here. Um, no, I, it is a kind of a combination under purchase services. So, you know, we buy some clinical services, the sheriff, security. It's kind of a mixed bag. Um, we could break it out and talk about it at a subsequent meeting. But the biggest item in total is the registry usage. And it's been fairly consistent dollar wise. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Yeah, John, I just have one more question. Um, so I, 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 when I was perusing the, the actual financials, I saw a couple of places where there was a field error, you know, where, it, it, you know, obviously the column did not, either was it wide enough. I, I mean, was that, intentional or is that something that'll be fixed when it's because it reads final draft i'm thinking why doesn't the column show um if you need an example i can give you i can find one for you um no i'm happy to to take those comments i would uh maybe request that you uh put them on Anne's radar so that she can uh work with me to make sure that those get corrected but yes they they we would expect to correct those and uh all of those types of of individual identifications yeah now i'm before now issuance. I'm, yeah i just like i said i don't know maybe ann knows where they are but i just i saw one and i was mm -hmm. curious about that now i'm not seeing it but there was a couple places where i saw that and um yeah, i figured it was just you know it's one of those you know on a, on a spreadsheet it just did it's obviously the, the column's not wide enough sort of thing yeah appreciate the, the comment and uh these financial statements will they say final draft, we, we expect the numbers to be fairly consistent. A lot of the final proofing and clerical check processes um, have not happened yet. So we'll, uh, we should have plenty of opportunities uh, to make sure we catch uh, those kinds of corrections. That need okay, to understood, thanks. Okay, thank so, you very much. So Mark, would you like to move recommendation to the full board of approval of the audit? I'll take that as a motion that I'll second. Yes, I would, Splen. Thank you. Uh, roll call, please. Trustee Chapman. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you very much to our Brian and John for uh, Excellent presentation, and uh, thank you to Kim and the whole team for another uh, totally clean audit. Thank you for all the work that went into this. Uh, moving right along. Uh, next up is a cybersecurity update from EJAZ and Akimi. Bye, John. Bye, Take Brian. Care. Thank you. Take care. So I'm um, filling in for EJOS today since he's not able to attend. So let me just um, 
my screen. So do you um, see my screen? Yeah, we do. Okay. So. Um, so we um, are still increasing our security controls. Um, and Ejos was mentioning about that um, ensuring encryption on all of our workstations and also enforcing encryption um, on all removable media. And he mentioned as far as our email metrics, um, we have uh, for this quarter um, increased our clean emails and our threats have um, gone down. But one thing because of the um, the holiday season approaching, <clears throat> that uh, there could be um, increase as far as um, bad actors um, taking advantage. You know, so that's one thing that he or he is working to ensure that uh, we are able to remove any of those malwares or ransomware. Any questions on this slide? So um, for our incident response, uh, there is no critical uh, incidences for um, this quarter and as far as critical systems, but for non-critical, uh, we had 38 um, cases where users uh, were affected by a malware. And um, it was, you know, due to like clicking on an email link or um, surfing through the web. Um, but they um, have a, a tool that removes the malware. So, uh, and as far as our um, total um, vulnerabilities, and this is to our operating systems for, you know, like a Windows, Windows 10, we have um, increased numbers that we are able to, um, as far as ensuring that there's Windows uh, 10 on all of our uh, laptops, because it has a uh, increased protections. And so our number um, of those vulnerabilities have gone down for this quarter. And please stop me if you have any questions. So this uh, last uh, slide um, is, this BitLocker is a, uh, it's a uh, protection um, to encrypt our data. And so um, right now we still have 641 workstations that are not encrypted. But um, Ejaz was mentioning uh, by the third quarter, um, end of March, that we will have these rest of the workstations encrypted. 
Are there any um, questions? Okay, so I'm gonna end the slide because that's his. And uh, let me just start sharing. And so um, the next is the, uh, the compliance um, report. And this is um, what uh, Marilyn's going to speak to um, her and me, but let me just share my screen. Okay. So. All right. Thanks, Akimi. Sure. So, Marilyn. <laughs> All right. Good evening, everyone. So, this is our um, internal audit and compliance report. Next slide, Akimi. It's not moving. Um, uh, Marilyn, while, while we're switching slides, uh, trustees and members of the public, uh, I just wanted to inform you all that we will be taking the privacy portion of this presentation into closed session under government code. I want if you could put this down for the record, 54956.9D3. So the privacy portion of this report we will discuss in closed session. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Ahmad. So this slide here really is primarily for information, informational only, um, and it's the compliance and internal audit plan for fiscal year 2023. And down the left side, it basically shows you all of the various areas that we have been working on uh, as far as performing audits. And across the top, you'll see the, the schedule from um, July of 2022 through June of 2023. And the bright blue basically is the time that has elapsed pretty much and where we are. The light blue says that, you know, this is ongoing work that's, you know, taking place for the full year and where we are. And later I'll be, you know, speaking to some specific slides that will um, give you an update on the audits that we have actually done. You see where we have a couple of audits that are in red. And this is where um, the first one here, the FY modifier audit, there was a small sampling that was done and we had anticipated this audit being completed by September. But once we got into it, we realized that we needed to expand that audit. And so it is gonna take a little bit longer and we're still working through that one. And the same thing with the aged uh, credit balances, that audit has been completed, um, but we're working with revenue cycle basically um, for an action plan on that one. And so that kind of gives you the landscape. The two on the bottom where you see gray, um, the pro fee coding audit and education one, um, 
a lot of this work is being transitioned to um, health information management. Well, they'll be doing some perspective uh, reviews. And so we're not going to be overlapping where we're doing uh, the reviews and they are also doing them. So some of that work is stopping on our end. And then the other one, um, the security of the non-EMR PHI systems, we're not doing that because um, Ajaz has picked up that work. Um, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. Was there a question? Okay, next slide. And so these are recurring uh, reviews that we do. Uh, the 340B program is on a quarterly basis. We do um, monthly exclusion screening. Open payment reviews is done annually. And then our EPIC break the glass reports, those are done quarterly. The next slide. And so for the first quarter, um, our 340B audits, we're at 100% with our um, the audit range date that we just completed was September of, uh, I'm sorry, July of 2022 through September of 2022. And we have uh, 100% on those audits. There was a question um, at our last um, meeting because I think there was um, like a 5% error rate. And I believe Sherry had asked, had asked, uh, our Kim had asked a question about that. And basically we went back and we did take a look at it. And what we found out that that error rate was primarily due to, um, was affected by some timing of when things were coming through. And it was also a result of some new drugs that had been added, but those drugs, um, the edits had not been put in place yet for those. And that also contributed to the error rate but this lace, those things have been corrected. And so we're at 100%. The next slide. And these are still the audits that are in progress. Um, we're still working through the FY modifier, um, age credit balances. Again, that's pending review by revenue cycle. We have the technical component modifier, and this looks like we may have um, built um, on our hospital side uh, a global fee when we should have only built a uh, technical component. So we're assessing the scope of that issue. And then uh, the inpatient admit and discharge audit that we're doing, we're still reviewing some claims uh, and working through that. The next slide. And so this is um, the reportable breach notifications. In um, in September on September 30th, there were um, one breach. It was unauthorized access to a patient's medical record. October 25th, again, there was an unauthorized access to a patient's medical record, and those were reported to both uh, CDPH and OCR. And then as far as plan of correction, uh, the patient's next of kin was notified of the incident and all other plans uh, are still in progress. These are the projects that we are still engaged in, uh, information blocking, we're in phase two of that. Uh, we still participate in the uh, Leadership Academy and we're doing trainings, compliance trainings in that. Um, we're working with the Advanced Beneficiary Notice or the ABN, that um, project group. We're involved with that. 
Um, we have, you know, worked with the behavior health um, with their compliance billing review, and that work is still ongoing. And then um, one of our, we're still working through um, the IRB manager implementation. So those are our, our ongoing projects. And then as far as our confidential message line reporting, um, basically overview, new this period in the first quarter, there were um, 50 new reports. We closed 126 um, cases. There are, about, there are 120 that are pending resolution. And then again, two reported um, to government agencies. The bulk of the cases are HR, there's 31, and then privacy had 13 cases. Um, those that were coded as ethics and compliance was two, risk one, regulatory requirements one, medical staff, and then billing each had one case. Next slide. And that's it for our report. Are there any questions? No questions. All right. So then the next um, thing is just a, a, a quick training that I wanted to do. So I will share my screen. And so this is basically just a, um, a lot of this information will not be new to you, but I thought it would be a good refresher. And so it's dealing with compliance program effectiveness. And I really wanted to kind of talk about it from, let's see, basically looking at board, at, you know, board members duty and oversight as it relates to primarily, you know, compliance and the responsibilities to our compliance area. And so both basically in a nutshell, our board members have a fundamental uh, fiduciary duty of care. And that um, duty basically have a two principal obligation. And what it really looks at is a, that we must have a corporate information and reporting system that has to exist. And we do have that in place. And that system has to be adequate. It needs to assure that appropriate information that deals with compliance and with applicable laws, that it can come to your attention in a timely manner uh, as a matter of just our ordinary operations. So it needs to be adequate. And we're getting, you're getting the information that you also need from us. The second prong basically is that uh, as board members, basically acting in good faith and demonstrating reasonable inquiry. And what does that really mean? It's basically saying that you're acting with a level of care that any ordinary prudent person would exercise in like circumstances. And that you, know, that you reasonably believe it's in the best interest of the organization. And here it's not looking for perfection, um, but just that board members are not required, you're not required to know everything about a topic. Um, and you certainly can get advice from management and outside advisors, but it's just that, again, that you're demonstrating good faith and reasonable inquiry. 
This is what our regulatory landscape looks like. We're in healthcare and we all know that we're very heavily regu regulated. There's increased funding for coordinated government enforcement. Whistleblowers are playing a very important role and risk associated with non-compliance is grown um, dramatically. I mean, we can easily go out there and do searches and we see organizations consistently getting hit with huge fines when they're not in compliance. Basically, we have three lines of defense when it comes to risk. Our first line of defense is operational management. Our frontline staff, our supervisors, they are boots on the ground and they should always be our front lines um, of defense because they're responsible for maintaining our internal controls and for really looking at areas where there are risk and putting controls in place. Then our second line of defense are those that basically oversee those risks and that would be risk management and compliance functions. And so that's financial controls, what we just went through with um, Moss Adams, security, risk management, quality, safety, and then compliance. And our third line of defense is internal audit. And that's where we get um, an independent assurance, you know, that the things we've put in place are actually working or should be working. And if you look at how these report up, our first and second line of defense um, basically report up to our senior management um, team and also internal audit will also have some reporting there. Our second line of defense compliance reports up, you know, through our senior management is a part of that team, but also reports to the board of trustees. And same thing um, with our third line of defense, which is this committee, you know, which is a part of the board. And so the foundation of an effective compliance program should always begin with its mission and vision statements and the organization's core values. And as our compliance team, we've spent some time really uh, working through this and we landed on these two, the vision is basically to build a culture of compliance where doing the right thing is second nature to our entire workforce. And then our mission is to provide, protect, and prevent. Provide support and awareness, protect the organization, and prevent compliance risk through optimization of the seven elements of, a of an effective compliance program. And so then what are those elements? The building blocks of an effective program basically are standards and procedures, training and education, auditing and monitoring, reporting, investigation and remediation, enforcement and discipline, oversight, and then I've added the eighth element, and that is risk assessment, because we need to do an annual risk assessment to find out where we are. And so when we talk about standards and procedures, we're looking at our standards for uh, business conduct or our code of conduct, making sure that we have a system policy and procedure committee, um, a system-wide policy management system, which we do, we have policy tech, and then uh, a way to acknowledge, you know, that our staff, you know, is getting um, educated on those policies. 
And then the second is training and education. And if we start at the very base, organizationally, it's general compliance training, which includes our privacy, information security, conflict of interest, workforce confidentiality, those type of trainings. Then uh, we have focus training, which is examples of that could be physician relationships, fraud, waste, and abuse, our 340B, uh, physician time approval. So it's different types of, uh, of training that could be focused. And then there's situational training, coding, documentation, research, privacy, those types of things. So making sure that we have a good training program in place. And then auditing and monitoring. So with auditing, oftentimes we're looking at uh, OIG uh, areas of focus. They generally every year put out you know, documents that let us know where they are focused. And so we're looking at those areas so that we could audit to make sure that you know, we don't have any issues there. Privacy audits, um, those are computerized and physical. Now, under the privacy audits, this is one area here where we definitely, um, you know, are looking at the possibilities of doing some more work because we don't really have the computerized part in place right now. And that we call that proactive monitoring. So that's an area that we certainly would like to, you know, take a look at uh, and expand upon. Other areas, suspected areas of concern, and we can get that information. Basically, it could come from, you know, um, billing inquiries or areas where we've already had, you know, some issues or staff giving us information, you know, that there are issues. And then there could be additional areas, you know, of compliance concerns. Our monitoring. Um, our physician arrangements, looking at our contracts, sanction screening, overpayments, um, making sure that those are getting refunded appropriately, our business associate, associate agreements, um, historical areas where we've had concerns or issues, and then looking at our corrective action plans and monitoring those to make sure that the actions that we say we were going to do, they are actually being done. And then reporting, you know, our incident management system, we use Lighthouse, um, then ma actually managing the incidents and our compliance team does that. Compliance rounding, that's something that since COVID we haven't been able to do, but that's actually going out into our various sites, you know, talking to employees, doing physical rounding and also, you know, speaking with staff. And then our confidential message line, which um, gives our staff the ability to report things anonymously if they're not comfortable, you know, uh, reporting. And then we have investigation and remediation, enforcement and discipline. And this basically is saying that when um, concerns are brought to us, that we have, you know, the procedures and processes in place to do a thorough uh, investigation. And when we find that there are issues that we can remediate or work with operational leaders to remediate those, um, those issues. And then there are times when we have to enforce our policies and when there are egregious, you know, um, incidents that take place, there's discipline that needs to be put in place. And we need to have a, a practice or a policy to make sure that that's um, consistent. And then here we have oversight. 
board of trustees or our board of governance um, and our audit and compliance committee, system governance, you know, compliance committees. And one of the things that, you know, I wanted to also bring to this group is that we, we want to restart our ethics and compliance committee. I believe it used to be called the uh, compliance steering committee, but that's at the executive level where we are meeting with, have operational leaders, you know, on that, um, that team and they're helping basically with the compliance program. And then the chief compliance officer, um, and that would be, you know, the role that I'm currently in as vice president of compliance and internal audit. It's called the chief compliance officer because in all of the government's documents, that is a term that they use. Um, when joint commission comes in and they are rounding on staff, they generally will ask staff, do you know who your uh, compliance officer is? And then our operational committee governance, again, like an executive compliance committee or steering committee, um, and so and subject matter experts. So that's where our oversight of the program comes, comes in. And then a risk assessment. And this is basically very essential um, to developing work plans, training and education and policy development. When we find out where the areas of concern are, the areas of high risk, then we can put together work plans to address those um, training materials that will address where our risks are and develop policies as needed. And so um, basically you can, it's regulatory work plans. We look at those, we consider again, what the government is looking at. If there are new laws that's come down or any key changes to laws and regulations, um, those things can affect our work plan. Data mining can uh, identify areas where we need to do additional work and the results of audits. And so basically uh, in an annual risk assessment, you're gathering feedback from the entire system and from all levels of leadership, including physicians. And when at all possible, we wanna go down actually to the lowest level within the organization that we can, because it's our frontline staff that really know uh, oftentimes where a lot of the key issues are. And so this is just a, a graphic that shows how all these elements interplay with one another. We do the, um, a, the, the risk assessment, and then from that we can develop standards and procedures. Those standards and procedures basically um, help us to develop training programs and education programs that uh, our staff need. And then the staff, once they learn about these things, then they are able to report when they find things that are inconsistent or concerns or issues. Once we receive those reports, then we do the investigation and remediation. And then that leads to enforcement and discipline. Then we put auditing and monitoring in place to make sure whatever the corrective action plans that were implemented, that they are actually working the way they should be. If not, then we can go back and revisit that. And then we bring that information to this group or to our leadership so that the oversight is there and the, the circle continues. And so this is just final, basically when we look at the role of the compliance officer, um, the healthcare landscape really has been changing and, and evolving a lot. Um, our risks are getting greater. Um, 
and the pace of change is just, it's accelerating. And so growth requires accountability and responsibility, respect and consideration of all stakeholders. So it's a time in healthcare organizations where there's a lot of pressure to use scarce resources and we have to use those scarce resources very sparingly oftentimes. And so we're being heavily penalized by government agencies for any acts of legal, environmental or social damage. And so the compliance officer basically sits at the very center of these seismic shifts uh, in helping to reshape our business. And the role is generally a trusted advisor to the CEO and a permanent member of the executive leadership team, basically just a sought out risk advisor when strategies are being set and their voice will hold sway and their wisdom will contribute to the resilience of the organization and meets the expectations that's set forth by the Office of Inspector General. So for the compliance uh, committee membership, this is basically just um, a list of the, the type of positions are the, the, the roles that should be a part of that committee. And there's one oversight here. Our chief legal um, officer should also be, you know, added to this list. And again, this is um, a committee that I want to get in place and operational at least by the first of the year, of the new year. And this is a list of all of the responsibilities of our compliance um, committee members. And I'm not going to go through all of it. You'll have the slide deck. And so you'll be able to, you know, read through these. But it's just giving guidance and, you know, um, really being in tune. And primarily for everyone on that list, making sure that they're leading their areas of responsibility as well in an ethical and a compliant way and demonstrating um, that leadership. And that's it. Are there any questions or comments? Thank you very much, Marilyn, for a very uh, comprehensive and well laid out uh, training and also the rest of your report. If there's no questions, we'll go into our closed session now, I think. Thank you, Marilyn. All right. Thank you. You, you made internal compliance exciting. Your definition of excitement may be different than mine's plan, but. <laughs> yeah. A lot of good information you provided. That's for Thank sure. You. Thank yeah. you. Well laid out. Yeah. Thank you, Chair Friedman. Uh, the board will now go into closed session in accordance with Government Code 54956.9D3 uh, as it pertains to um, the reportable um, breach incidences uh, in uh, Maryland's slides there. Thank you.
the audit and compliance committee of the board met in closed session and the committee took no reportable action. Thank you very much for attending our meeting of the audit committee. Uh, have a good evening. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Have a good evening, everyone. Bye-bye.